1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently had the good fortune of being able to sit down here at the University of British Columbia and talk with one of my colleagues, Joshua Masto, about his really gorgeous new book, courtly visions, the Issei stories and the politics of cultural appropriation. This came out with Brill in 2014. Now it is gorgeous. And I'll just say that right at the beginning. This is a book that you're going to want to have around so that you can open it up and page through some of the really beautiful images from illustrated scrolls and also from later paintings and later appropriations of the imagery of the tales of Issei, the Issei stories, Issei Monogatari. It's also, though, a really fascinating book in terms of its modeling of how we might read images as texts. How do we go about attending to illustrations, visual material, and really working through it to try to piece out? from the ways that parts of the image relate to each other to the ways that the stylistic decisions of the image um, or the ways that the image were, was used by readers, by other um, consumers of the image through time can tell us something about how to fit the image within a larger environment of arguments, both about images and about the essay stories in particular. So it's a really great model for how to read images is what I'm saying. It's also a really important intervention into larger debates about this really, really important um, text in the history of Japanese literature. So what the book does is it looks at, um, among other things, or it kind of focuses on the three works that constitute the oldest Ise pictures. All of these works are from the 13th century, and all of them are in the form of illustrated scrolls, but they're written in really different styles. So the book asks, Well, you know why? How do we read these images? Why are they so different? And what can those differences tell us about how these stories, these Issei stories, were appropriated? Right? Were repositioned to function in very different contexts and play very different roles in those contexts. So it's about, as the subtitle indicates, cultural appropriation and what it can look like to try to understand cultural appropriation as much as it's about these Issei stories and the beautiful images um, that. That we have as an archive of different ways of reading and illustrating these stories. So I'll leave it there um, so that you can get right to the interview. And I'll just say that it's really, again, it's a gorgeous book. It was such a pleasure to talk with Joshua about it. Um, it's really a pleasure for me to have colleagues like this to work with at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks very much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Joshua Masto about his new book, Courtly Visions, the Issei Stories and the Politics of Cultural Appropriation. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies on this beautiful day in Vancouver, beautiful. Joshua. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Thanks so much for being here. So, the book that we're talking about um, it is about the Issei Stories, and I'll sort of contextualize this a little bit. In pre modern Japan, as you say in the beginning of the book, Issei Monogatari, also known as the Issei Stories or Tales of Issei, was considered to be one of the three most important works of literature in the Japanese language. And the book we're here to talk about looks at the appropriation of these stories from the 12th through the 17th centuries and beyond. It focuses especially on images of and in and with the text. So Joshua, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this project? How um, should we understand this in the larger context of your research?
0: Um, Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm interested in looking at not just classical Japanese literary texts, but how those literary texts have been understood over time. So uh, I think the old kind of what we call philological approach to almost any foreign text was to try to translate it uh, as the author or the original audience understood it. And once you'd done that, you'd finished your job. You knew what the text said, and, and you were happy. But a text such as the essay, which has been around since the ninth century, has gone through profound change in the way it's been read and understood over the centuries. And that seems to me at least as interesting as whatever the original audience might have been doing with the text. And one of the ways of understanding how the reading and interpretation of the text changes over time is through its pictorializations, its illustrations. Um, There are uh, aspects of a verbal text that can be left uh, unspecified or unclear, The Japanese language, for instance, doesn't really have a distinction between singular and plural and nouns. But if you're going to paint a picture of that, you're going to have to decide whether there's one, two, three, or more people. So uh, seeing how this originally courtly literary romance uh, was... Uh, appropriated, received, interpreted by changing populations over the course of Japanese history is um, what I'm interested in. I did this originally with a collection of poems, uh, the Hyakuni issue, the 100 Poets, One Poem Each, a book called Pictures of the Heart. Um, and this is moving into a text that is both uh, poetic and prosaic right it's the, the, the 125 short episodes that typically have some uh, story set up and then an exchange of poems typically of a romantic nature
1: and I should say, um, right at the outset, you mentioned the importance of images um, and sort of visualizations to the analysis. The book is also gorgeous. Mm. I mean, it's there; the it's so striking well, thank how you. many images there are, how many color images. And
0: 171, but who's counting? Right. Yes, no, it was, uh, It's the, the series is the Japanese visual culture series, and uh, it does give authors the opportunity to have seemingly unlimited illustrations in color and when you start the project, you're very happy about that and then when it moves into production and you discover you have to get the permissions and quality images for all of them you wonder what in the hell you were thinking
1: (laughs) I can't imagine the amount of labor that goes into producing this but I will just mention that because for um, listeners, this is a book that you just want to have around that you want to be looking at and and working with, Um, but the images aren't just illustrations, so a lot of the analysis um, is about reading the image as texts, right. as much, and that's it. Seems like a really important part of what's happening here, of the analysis, and a really important way that the images are working, not as mere illustrations here. Yeah.
0: Right, and I think it's uh, pretty much central to what I'm trying to do. It's although it's uh, got a lot of pictures, uh, it is somewhere between art history and cultural analysis or something like that. So um, I try to stay away from uh, discussions of school styles or artistic genius or especially uh, iconographies or inherited iconographies and kind of strip that away and really ask, okay, what does this picture mean? What is it doing? Who is it doing it for? And what does that mean about how they're using this text? Uh, and um, yeah, great.
1: And there's a, um, I think it's a model among among other contributions of this text. It's really a model of how we can approach and use images as evidence, also to engage in debates around the meaning of and use of and um, understandings of the text historically.
0: That's right, and 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 they really provide um, a k- kind of data that in many cases, otherwise not available. Um, you know, pictures do kind of create their viewer. You're supposed to stand here. You're supposed to look at this. And um, while the, the Isse has a very long and very rich commentary history, um, that, of course, remains with the elite, uh, and that doesn't say how less elite populations are reading or understanding. And uh, well, actually, at either end of the historical spectrum, for the uh, aristocratic audiences closer to its point of inception, there's no commentary. So if we want to try to imagine how it was being read, pictures are, are very important. At the other end, uh, once you get into the early modern period, um there are uh, lots of levels of appropriation that that don't have a corresponding uh, mm-hmm. verbal commentary.
1: Right. So to actually start to understand some of these transformations and appropriations, let's start at the beginning. Okay. Um, so for listeners who don't know anything about this story. Can you talk a little bit about the context of the origin of the text so that we can understand the, the appropriations and the transformations? Sure. sure. So
0: um, current scholarly consensus is that the Issei stories, uh, what was would have been a much smaller text, uh, mm-hmm came into being around an individual called uh, Adiwara no Narihira. We'll just call him Narihira, uh, who was uh, actually the grandson of an emperor and part of a political literary salon based around uh, a uh, son of the emperor. Uh, Japan, at this period of time and through most of its history, did not practice primogeniture. So that meant that any... In son of, a, of an emperor could potentially be chosen as crown prince. And uh, families and interest groups tended to center around the individual candidates. And, uh, you know, I guess some, some of those groups were more interested in football, and some were more interested in poetry. The one Nadejira was involved in was very literary. Uh, and so a small collection of stories uh, and poems uh, seems to have come out of that that salon. The salon was almost entirely homosexual. Uh, it was women did not participate in government, uh, and uh, so it was kind of the guys amongst themselves drinking, uh, going hunting, um, not not uh, yeah, not playing uh, any kind of sports or anything like that. But in any event, so it, it was it was. Uh, a very kind of male-oriented text. Um, But very early on, uh, it became kind of a standard of women's reading, aristocratic women. And part of the reason for this, of course, is it was written in the vernacular. It was written in Japanese, whereas um, serious stuff was written in classical Chinese. Uh, In any event, um, the text becomes part of uh, what... Educated aristocratic women were supposed to uh, be familiar with and read. It was alluded to in their poetry or their own writings because vernacular writing moved very quickly to be a almost exclusively feminine domain. Um, but the original text had really been kind of mean. Uh, it was very urban. Mm-hmm. It looked down on people who lived in the provinces. Yeah, yeah. This is, and and so it was a kind of cliquish um, well, you know, aristocratic uh, kind of culture. Uh, and so several of the episodes have women being kind of made fools of or embarrassed mm-hmm. um, creating faux pas. Uh, and we can actually see in some of the uh, earliest surviving pictorializations of these episodes a kind of different reading that makes the text more acceptable to a feminine reader, doesn't want to see That female character abused, Mm -hmm. um, and also brings the text closer to one of the major genres of women's writing, uh, which was a kind of autobiography. So, uh, although its standard title is Issei Monogatari, the, the Issei stories, uh, for much of its history, it was seen as a kind of biography or autobiography of Narihira, and these were precisely this was precisely one of the genre that uh, women writers excelled
1: at. Now, before um, so, there's a whole chapter, a really fascinating chapter that we'll get to almost right now on um, sort of women readers of the text and the ways that we can start to understand how they may have appropriated the text through analyzing the illustrations. Um, And we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to mention for listeners, without asking you to talk too much about it, there's also a really wonderful discussion in the first chapter. I thought it was a wonderful discussion of um, a theory that, uh, it, it seems like a, a popular theory, um, that the texts actually may have been a result of um, uh, what had existed before that, which are these screen images, right? And so there's a really nice working through of an argument against the idea that pictorial images on screens actually preceded the text. And I mention that not to ask you to talk too much about it. But no, because
0: it's rather dense, <laughs> uh, and readers should be encouraged to skip it if they find their no. interest. Uh, no, way, no, no, I, th- I think
1: uh, On the contrary, I think it's, again, a real... Model for how to use pictorial evidence and other kinds of evidence um, to analyze these kinds of debates in a way that's mm-hmm. really productive so that we're not just relying on text. We're sort of incorporating a reading of the images into our evidentiary base. So, and that brings us to the second chapter. And this is this wonderful chapter um, on the oldest illustrated essay work. This is the Hakubio essay stories, right? And that's I'm right. going to mispronounce everything, right. so just kind of embrace it.
0: Sure, sure, go, sure, go with there. it. Um, <laughs>
1: Now this chapter does a lot of really interesting things it looks at the movement of the essay from the original male salon context that you talked about in the first chapter that gave rise to these stories to a wider female readership in the first cultural appropriation of the essay. So before we look at the nature of that appropriation, let's take a moment to talk about this notion of cultural appropriation, because this is uh, in the title, it seems central to what's yeah. going on. Can you talk a little bit about that as in terms of your goals for the
0: book? Sure. Uh, actually, it's something that came to me somewhat late in the writing process and that is probably visible in the book. Um, there has been a lot of work uh, especially in English uh, concerning uh, classical Japanese literature over the last decade or so on um, re- reception history and also canon formation on mm-hmm. uh, important uh, anthology of, of, as our collection of essays by Haruo Shirane and Tomi Suzuki, Inventing the Classics. Um, and so that's the kind of discourse. Those are the words we've been using for the last decade or so in, in talking about this reading of later readings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not entirely satisfactory. Uh, reception continues to sound passive, that there's something and you just receive it. Canon formation certainly sounds active, but it makes it sound like, you know, something gets canonized once and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as I was actually working through the late stages of the book, I realized that, no, really what I'm talking about is someone someone, or some groups of someone's seizing something that really isn't theirs. Uh, in in the Japanese context, uh, this shows the issei going from, as we talked about, an elite uh, male aristocracy to a somewhat wider, but still very elite female readership. Then you get it taken over by the warrior class as political power moves from the court to uh, succeeding uh, military uh, administrations, and finally the big boom uh, in the early modern period, starting in the 17th century, with urbanization, commodification, and print capitalism. Uh, and so the text can move across cr- class lines, gender lines, and um, you know, before these texts were published uh, in the early modern period, the only way you could get one of these was by someone who had a manuscript and was willing to lend it to you Mm -hmm. and the only way you could learn about it was to hire an aristocrat to lecture to you about it Uh, and then in in the early modern period starting in the 17th century, the texts are printed, they get very cheap Uh, lecture notes are printed commentaries are printed so, um and and then texts like the Asay start being used for parodies and uh, brought into popular culture. Um, so it and you know the aristocrats weren't particularly happy about that, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, in the middle in medieval period, they're actually supporting themselves by selling manuscripts and making copies and whatnot. But so it's it's a very complicated transaction, um, and and I think really is uh, well characterized by the term appropriation.
1: Right. Thank you. Sure. So to get into the details of what's happening in this particular case, which is this first appropriation, let's talk about some of the illustrations here. Yeah. So by the 12th century, the Issei, as you um, say in the book, was a staple of aristocratic women's reading and actually a source text of Tel Genji. right? Now, the illustrations in this, um, this version of the text that you explore in this chapter were, represent a reading of the essay text that would appeal to these readers, okay? And you take us through different um, kinds of imaging and images that speak to this. Now, to start us off, maybe give us an example. Can you talk a little bit about what do we see um, in this reading of the essay that illustrates the concerns of aristocratic women? Sort of How yeah. do we read this? And you talk about it in this chapter specifically um, in the context of what you call a feminine regard, yeah. and a kind of proactive female gaze. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about um, these issues in the context of how you're reading these particular
0: images? Yeah. The feminine... Regard or regard is mm-hmm. is something I I published earlier, uh, and I try to bring it in here. I fear sure I didn't probably explain it uh, as well as I might have, um, but it's a kind of complex of things that include uh, masculine specularity, that is, women being able to look at men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the whole dynamics of the gaze. Uh, it includes also uh, in verbal text expressions like uh, "look just like a picture," uh, and that is often used uh, again for women looking at men and saying, "Oh, he looked just like a picture of a of a hero in a mon- in a in a romantic tale." Um, and it also has to do with um, a kind of absorption that uh, women readers and viewers would have engaged in when looking at these illustrated tales and visual techniques in some of these uh, illustrated works that actually kind of work against that, push the viewer out of their absorption and call them to kind of take a somewhat more critical view of, of what they're reading. Um, in, in this case uh, uh, it should be said that um, drawing, ink drawing was a polite accomplishment Um, so when when someone when uh, one of your female friends lent you one of these tales the first thing you probably did was start copying it and if it had illustrations which they mostly did, you copied those too and you might even add some illustrations of your own. I mean, ideas about authorship and whatnot were, were pretty loose. Um, so this earliest black-and-white version, and it exists only in fragments, seems to be a an amateur copy of what might have been a professional polychrome original. Um, the starting point for discussion of uh, all these illustrations is that there are three illustrated versions of the essay that the standard explanation is uh, all date from the 13th century. And this is really remarkable because in terms of pictorial style, they are radically different. They have almost nothing to do with each other, even though they're talking about the same little episode. And so that was kind of the starting point is why are there these different modes of visualization and, in each instance, who would they be for? Um, and so taking two of the earliest ones, this black and white one and something that's called the Kubo version, which is polychrome, we can look at the, the first episode. And the first episode, a young man goes out hunting into the countryside. Uh, he goes to the old capital, which has kind of been abandoned and run down. And he just haps to, happens to peek into a house and he sees... Two beautiful women who would be, you know, I, when I teach this in class, I say, think, you know, uh, New York models, Manhattan models there in, you know, Surrey, right? They don't, they don't belong, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, he's just blown away, falls in love, um, and rips off a piece of his hunting robe, writes a love poem into them, and, and has it sent into them. Um, now, in the Kubo version, Arguably, or even in the, the other 13th century version, we see, we come and we f- see the young man staring in through the blinds at the women. Uh, and this makes perfect sense. That's what the text says. Um, this black and white uh, version, however, we come in and we, the, we follow the gaze of a serving woman through the blinds, to the young man sitting on the veranda, oblivious of her writing his poem. So the picture has managed to completely reverse the visual dynamics. Who has the gaze? Who's the object of the gaze? And it seems to me, for this and obviously a whole lot of other reasons, uh, it makes sense to imagine that this was uh, an illustration or an illustrative mode that was designed to appeal to female readers.
1: Awesome, and there is um, there are a whole lot of really wonderful readings of the images like that in the chapter. But there are also a whole lot of other really amazing texts in the book, so I want to get to the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the third chapter looks at one of these. This is a text called The Love Song of Lord Takafusa. This is a very different kind of appropriation of Issei. And here, as you put it, allusions to the text are actually used to create a new text. Now, this this sounds, at least from my perspective, to be a super groovy text. This um, turns out to be a hundred poem story written by um, Fujiwara no Takafusa, who's a very successful courtier, so I'm going to put this in your hands. Can you introduce the nature of this text and why is it so important for us to understand yeah. in this part of the book?
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, Takafusa is a real historical human being uh, and he was uh, serving in court under the time of the Taira, Taira no Kiyomori. Uh, this was the first military government um that Japan kind of fell under. <laughs> uh, the imperial family had split into uh, competing uh, groups, and they kept calling the warriors in to kind of settle things. And at one point, one of the warrior groups, I said, you know, we're tired of coming in and then going back out. To the, we're just going to stay. Uh, and so they pretty much took over the court. Um, and uh, Takafusa was one of the courtiers, uh, and he was... Uh, involved with uh, a lady-in-waiting, Lady Kogol, uh, who was suddenly kind of reassigned to the reigning emperor, Takakura. Um, and it's very confusing, I'm afraid, that they got the guy named Takafusa, and then we have Emperor Takakura, and if you're not used to it, it gets <laughs> kind of confusing. But in any event. So... Um, the the main the kind of the big work from this period of time is called the Tale of the Heike the Heike Monogatari and uh, it tells us that you know after uh, Lady Kogō was put into the service of Emperor Takakura uh, she cut off all contact with Takafusa uh, and that was it um, Takafusa as you said has uh, a collection of one hundred poems. And Japanese poems are very short. They're 31 syllables in five lines. And usually they are not used narratively. So this is very unusual to have a 100-poem a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically just a long complaint about how he misses Lady Kogol. Um, but through it, it's quite clear that they were still seeing each other, even while she was in service to the emperor. Um, part of what makes this text interesting is it's, it represents... A male appropriation of the vernacular mm-hmm. and of the autobiographical, mm-hmm. um, and um, but he and and the way he tells this story is uh, kind of like uh, the text called "Becoming a Heroine." He has read the essay; he has internalized it. The essay has in it as a a big element, but by no means the only one, a love triangle between an emperor, Narihira, and a future empress. Uh, and so he uses that as the model to tell his own mm-hmm. tragic triangular love affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a constant allusion to poems in the Issei uh, and two situations in the Ise. So He essentially rewrites his own life following the Issei. And this is something that, you know, a hundred years earlier would have been much more typical of a female writer.
1: And it's a really fascinating story. You also talk about this um, in the context of what you call a medievalization of the Issei, right? This sort of um, male protagonist, sort of this more masculine uh, appropriation of the story, and also you note a stronger religious element
0: That's in the right. text. That's right. right. So, I mean, this becomes one of the earliest examples of a kind of tragic love story. Um, and well, and those stories, which are a staple of medieval life, are always uh, focused on one protagonist, almost always a man, who, after an unhappy love affair, realizes the illusory nature of the real world, <laughs> and you know, devotes himself then to Buddhist practice, so it's a it's a kind of enlightenment story, unhappy love enlightenment story, we <laughs> could call it, and uh, and that's new, and that's not really part of the court tradition. Um, so it is taking that, and certainly Nodhita never did that. Um, so um, it is you know definitely putting that basic structure into uh, a much different use. Great.
1: So as we move from this um, to, and then again, the transition that you mentioned before, um, from this court-centered aristocracy to a warrior-based community is part of the transformation that we see from text to text, but we also now move from this text um, to the next chapter, which is a very different context and also a super fascinating context about a really gorgeous text and a really puzzling kind of text. So this is a chapter on the Kubo version of the stories. And what happens here is that Takafusa's tale, the one that we were just talking about, is appropriated by a set of emperors. This is the Jimyo-in emperors who claimed him as one of their ancestors. And this becomes really important for understanding the political context um, of these appropriations in, I think, a really fascinating way. So chapter 4 focuses on the Ise monogatari a uh, or the second oldest Isse monogatari Mike.
0: Yeah, emaki right? a, okay. a, whatever, sure. Okay,
1: great. Um, <laughs> this is the Kubo version of the text. Um, so to sort of get us into what's so fascinating about the text, um, it's gorgeous, there's gold and silver sprinklings there are these really fascinating underpaintings. Can you um, basically open up the nature of the text and to describe it for listeners?
0: Yeah, again, uh, like the black and white Hakubyo version it exists in a very fragmentary form. We only have, I don't know six pictures and maybe three pieces of text. They've now been remounted into one scroll but they're out of order. Um, and uh as 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 Carla was saying, the the pictures are illuminated. I they're, they're just encrusted with with silver and gold, uh, which is such contrast from the amateurish black and white of the earlier version. Um, the text passages are. Uh, calligraphed over underpaintings that through hidden words and both and images seem to allude to yet other episodes of the essay.
1: so there's actually some parts of the images and you point this out in the text there are um, like the tree trunk is actually stylized
0: right to um, into, letters. into letters that's right and so you can you can you can see what what those are, uh, that, that they're alluding, th- those words don't appear in the text that's calligraphed over it, therefore it must be some other episode, and you know, you join the scholarly fray of trying to figure out what it is. Uh, but my point here is that, you know, <laughs> this... This is a, It has become a symbolic object. It is cultural capital. It is not someone, some some woman sitting by herself reading it. It is a political statement, and it is reaffirming um, the importance of traditional Japanese Heian period culture in the face of a, a, a kind of. S- wave of imports from the continent, uh, new Song-style calligraphy, emphasis on Zen Buddhism, uh, and the, as you said, the the uh, imperial household itself has broken into a junior and senior line, and this senior line is aligning itself with kind of traditional culture, while the junior line is championing some of the more recent imports.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And so you you make a point here, in addition to leading us through the importance of the kind of puzzling out of what do these underpaintings refer to? Because for listeners um, who haven't yet had a chance to read the text, it might not be obvious, it's not at all immediately clear what these scenes in the underpaintings refer to, right? Right. Which scene is it? And so it becomes a kind of game or a kind Mm -hmm. of puzzle. Um, And some of the chapter talks about that and takes us through that process. Um, But as well, you you talk about this as a very, very political work. And this is a concern that is worked out even further in the next chapter. That's right. So this is a chapter, chapter five now, that talks about the, it brings us back to the love song of Lord Takafusa, who we were just talking about. And it looks at the love song of Lord Takafusa illustrated scroll. Precisely. Okay, um, so this is now done in a plain ink style, right. just like the um, the versions of the text, the, the illustrations that we were talking about in the context of the um, pr- production by women. Right, right, right. right. But it's very different. Mm. Uh, so the chapter argues, and I'm just going to lay this out and then mm. ask you to kind of open this up okay. for us. The chapter argues that this illustrated scroll is also the product of the in court or the same court that produced the Kubo version of the text that we just talked about. Okay. Um, so what's going on there? Why would these emperors illustrate a text that's basically about imperial cuckolding, right? right? Remember this love tri- triangle right. and, and sort of what's happening?
0: Right, right, right. Um, well, uh, so, so we, we can go back to um, the, the Lord Takafusa, love song of Lord Takafusa text first, because the last thing I consider in that chapter is why it's not Les Majestés. <laughs> it, it, it makes it clear that, um, you know, uh, Takafusa and Kogo were still having intimate relations, even though she was in uh, service stamp for Takakura. How do you get away with that? Um, and, um, first it needs to be said that, um, virginity has almost never had any cultural importance in, in Japan, except maybe from the early modern period onwards. Uh, and in the tale of Genji, uh, the, uh, the, one of the emperors has, uh, Lady in waiting that he's very fond of, but he, whom he knows, uh, is still seeing Genji. Um, so, so there is that kind of, let's say, permissiveness. But it's actually possible historically, um, even though, uh, and, and this is where the the picture scroll becomes uh, relevant. In the picture scroll, the the emperor Emperor Takakura as is presented as an adult essentially looking the same age or perhaps older than Takafusa. In fact, he was much younger. Uh, and so it's clear that even when Lady Kogo was put into his service, he was still prepubescent and that, uh, until he reached his majority, so to speak, Mm -hmm. became master of his castle or whatever. Um, it was not seen as less majesty for for her to be involved with someone else i suspect that once he did become sexually active then then all his women were out of bounds uh and then what uh takafusa can do is turn that into a beautiful plaint right it in a way affirms the the authority of the Emperor, because we know that's not happening anymore, and the Emperor wins, in the sense that Kogo does not stay with Takafusa. Emperor dies pretty soon, too. But, regardless. Um, And so, uh, then we look at... this, uh, reappropriation or this appropriation of the Takafusa story, uh, in, in a time when we have this division between the imperial court. And my argument is that, that the Takafusa scroll, uh, makes a wonderful pendant to the Kubo scroll. We have the classic Kubo, uh, with just heavy pigmentation and gold and silver. And then we have this incredibly elegant black and white version, uh, that's not amateurish by any sense. It's just absolutely exquisite, and it's more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, more to the point, um, it turns out that Takafusa, who's not really like a household name in Japan uh, at all, um, but he actually was the pro- one of the progenitors of the imperial line, uh, of starting back three generations from... Um the people who were uh, commissioning these scrolls. And again, um, this is an interesting moment in uh, Japanese history uh, where, hmm, let's back up for a moment, sure. the role the role of Japanese poetry in the Imperial court. Um, the place you as a poet, the place you wanted one of your poems to appear, was in what was known as a imperial anthology. The emperor would say, okay, let's say, gather a group of people together and say, I want you know, an anthology of a thousand poems, of the best poems of ancient times and modern times um, that haven't appeared in any of the previous imperial anthologies, and there were ultimately 21 of them. Um, so um, the, com- the commissioning of... Uh, poetry anthologies was uh, an imperial prerogative. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when the imperial family started splintering, so did the poetic houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, poetry was largely hered- a hereditary right. And so um, each, okay, the, the two uh, g- junior and senior imperial lines, had kind of schools of poetry associated with them that had their own stylistic ideas. I mean, to us, they might not look all that different, but they were vitally important to them. (laughs) And uh, in this time, um, uh, in fact, uh, the senior uh, imperial line was intimately connected with the Kyogoku School of Poets. And as a matter of fact, um, an interesting thing that changes over time is to what extent the emperors themselves are poets. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the earlier period, um, they aren't so much – this is gross simplification – but at this period of time – they were very, very involved in poetry. Uh, and so the prime minister, Kyogoku Tanikai, uh was actually the leader of this poetry school. He served as a tutor to the crown prince and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, and Takafusa's poetry which is actually from before that period, is kind of Kyogoku style of poetry avant la lettre. Mm-hmm. It's unusual. Usually, traditionally, in Japanese poetry, love poetry is expressed through natural imagery. Mm-hmm. Cherry blossoms, crying deer, da-da-da-da-da his love poetry is amazingly prosaic. He just says, you know, I'm feeling awful, and when I wonder why, I realize it's your fault. And that's the poem, you know. Uh, and so, Kyogoku was known for this kind of, on one hand, divorce of natural imagery from, from its love poetry. And on the other hand, in its nature poetry, so attention to minutia, to little moments of natural phenomenon, mm-hmm. and uh, one can kind of see that in Takafusa's poetry, and so here's, you know, they've got this model of Narihira as the, what's called the Miyabio, the courtly man, the man of elegance, um, and here they have one of their own ancestors from, you know, just a few generations earlier, who's kind of like a new avatar of it, Um, And so I think that's why they seized on it um, and uh, used it in this kind of political capital way along with the ESA.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Fabulous. So after a chapter devoted to this... We have a chapter that looks at tantric commentaries hmm. and popular humor and looks at a set of scrolls called the Variant Issei, scrolls, or Issei Stories Illustrated Scrolls. Okay, the Variant Issei Stories Illustrated Scrolls. Now, this is a super fascinating text as well. The text of this work diverges, as you um, uh, point out in this chapter, from the standard version of Issei. And you raise a major question. Who made this version of the text, and why did they make this version, and there's all kinds of scholarly debate around this, and this chapter um, kind of plugs into that scholarly debate and and kind of unravels it in a way I think that's very useful. So there's a theory that you're responding to here, that the text is related to esoteric tantric interpretations of Issei from the late Kamakura period. Now you argue against this, and also argue against this periodization. So can you maybe open this up
0: yeah. So, uh, one of the more bizarre appropriations of the Ise has to be something that happened in um, the provinces away from Kyoto um, in the Kamakura period, where it was uh, interpreted as a tantric text, that Nadi Hira was a bodhisattva who brought enlightenment through sexual intercourse to thousands of women, and there was a way through Algorisus to read the text to make it mean that. Um, eh, So... um, (laughs) And, and Susan Klein is the the American scholar who's really done the most the, the major work on this. Um, in uh, in this picture scroll, the Ihon, the variant text, um, we see Narihira um, in seeming in conversation with the god uh, Sumiyoshi, who's kind of a god of poetry, um, and um, there is uh, the, the kind of dean of Issei Studies, Katagiri Yoichi, has really wanted to see this text as somehow related to these, these tantric texts. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you um, look at the episodes that those tantric texts reference... They by and large don't overlap with the scenes that are chosen for this very abbreviated version of the isei. Uh And to me, the kind of clincher one is um, the, the we call it the Ise stories um, because uh, one of the 125 uh, episodes is about Narihira having sex with the Ise priestess, mm-hmm. and the theory is that you know this this story among the 125 was so conspicuous popped out so much that it just kind of gave the name to the whole collection. So it's not the case that this is stories all about the Issei province or lady Issei, or, you know, it's just, it's the stories about the Issei priestess and all those other ones. Uh, Anyway, so um, that episode itself has its textual problems. Um, which I've gone into in uh, Royal Tyler and I have done a translation of the Isse Monogatari, so the notes are all there. Um, But by and large, it was generally accepted um, that they actually had had sex. And indeed, there was a belief that their descendants were still living and people could identify who they are. Um, And you would think that if you were doing a tantric interpretation of the text, you might play that up pretty much. Certainly, you wouldn't play it down (laughs) and yet the illustration to that scene in the ihon variant version um has uh narihira sitting on the veranda with the isei virgin uh the isei priestess behind a a a curtain what's called a curtain of state looking very decorous and and uh also the way the text is written um it makes pretty clear that this version, at least, is suggesting that they did not have sex. Mm-hmm. So then you get into, well, then why, why did anyone bother with this text? Why, why did they make this this way? Uh, and um, a number of scholars have pointed out that uh, in the early Muromachi period, so let's say the early 1300s, um, these formerly esoteric commentaries that would get passed on through rituals, kind of like, you know, um, were actually starting to circulate publicly. Mm-hmm. And where this is most obvious and kind of what kicked off the whole reception studies of, of Issei uh, in the early 60s, I guess, um, is in no plays. There are a number of no-plays that are based on Issei Monogatari. Um, and some of them reference the esoteric commentaries explicitly. And no-players Were and no playwrights, were the dregs of society. So if these formerly aristocratic, esoteric commentaries are getting even down to them, then they must not be very esoteric anymore. (laughs) And in fact, um, they seem to have been viewed rather humorously. And so I argue that actually there's a lot of humor in this illustrated version, which no one really has argued for before, and we'll see whether I am able to convince anyone of that.
1: So the chapter also, just to mention um, for listeners so that they know it's there, it ends by looking at a fictional fan-matching contest from the Muramachi period, and there's actually a translation of that work as an appendix in this volume.
0: Right, done by Keller Kimbrough. And there's also, we should say, a complete translation of the the, uh, Takafusa scroll has... um, a kind of what's called a choka, a long poem, mm-hmm. um, that actually replaced about the last thirty poems of the hundred poem sequence, mm-hmm. and that's written out in its entirety. And I translated that in one of appendices. So if you're interested in that scroll, you now actually have the text to go with it.
1: It also means, uh, or it also makes the volume, among other things, really useful for teaching as well. Um, anytime we can have sources like this available mm. is a good thing. So as we move to the last few chapters of the book, we move to a chapter, Chapter 7, that looks at the saga edition Issei stories and understands um, or gives us a window into the importance of the emergence of print culture and print technology to the transformation of um, sort of uh, iconography and also as a moment in the iconography of this text. So this chapter shows, among other things, that the iconography in this particular text, the saga edition Issei stories, does not, as previous scholars have argued, reflect some standardized iconography of the Issei, but instead represents the invention of a standardized iconography that was probably produced by a member of a particular school, the Kano school, that was diffused thanks to this print technology okay so can you um, just kind of briefly tell us a little bit about um, so why is it important for us to understand this in the larger context of the scholarship around this text? Why is this crucial as part of your argument?
0: Yeah um, Many art historians. Uh, Japanese art historians have wanted to believe... Well, okay, let's put it this way. Um, There are, as you said, schools of Japanese art. And uh, the two biggest ones, although they're kind of asymmetrical in terms of size, are the Kano School and the Tosa School.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the Kano um, uh, were patronized, were kind of the official painters for successive military governments. And they used a kind of Chinese-derived style, Uh, And uh, whereas the Tosa were responsible for the indigenous Yamatoe Japanese style. And, you know, so if you think about pictures for the Tale of Genji... You would expect them to be in Tosa style. And uh, as I say in the introduction, there's evidence for some sort of uh, solidification of iconography for the tale of Genji very, very early. Um, And being that the Ise is such an important text, it really is just kind of mind-boggling if the Tosa school did not have a set iconography. Mm -hmm. I admit the mind-bogglingness of it, I am not, however, responsible for explaining why they don't or didn't. I'm just trying to establish that, in fact, they did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Saga Bon, uh, the Saga Edition, is a printed edition. It is, in fact, the, the first printed, illustrated vernacular literary piece in Japanese history. Okay, so it's been printed and it's been illustrated and it's the first one. Uh, They were using a really awkward uh, printing process. Uh, It's actually movable print, Mm -hmm. uh, but made out of wood. And, you know, given how thin the calligraphic line is and that you're not using a press, you're burnishing it. Kind of a disaster. In any event, it was it was a it was a luxury good. It was done um, by a group of artists in Kyoto, uh, as much I think as a curiosity as anything else. The papers are different colors. Um, you know, it's it's lovely, but it's it's a little eccentric. Um, but it does have I forgotten forty eight illustrations, um, and. Um, Previous scholars have very much wanted to see, want to imagine or to prove that those must have been uh, based on Tosa School iconography. <laughs> and uh, I'm not alone. I, based on some other Japanese scholars' work, show that, you know, one can find something that looks like differing iconographic lineages as represented by a text that is in the British Library mm-hmm. and one is in the Chester Beattie in Ireland, in Dublin. Uh, and you can actually see the saga artist picking and choosing and combining them along with you know some other sources. So what's important is that this standardization of the Issei iconography was not some gradual process
1: mm-hmm.
0: but was actually Enabled by print technology, uh, and that and, and so is kind of inherently early modern, mm-hmm. um, and and that seems to me uh, an important take-home message, especially that then because you have this booming print culture. Now, having an established iconography, you can do lots of things with it. You can do parodies of it. You can, you know, use it in theatrical performances. The, 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 the sky's the limit. You can use it for brothel advertisements. Um, so it it is the moment of commodification.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, I think important to see that in its historical moment.
1: Now, in contrast, so the next chapter, which is the final body chapter for right. the epilogue, kind of um, is in dialogue with what's happening in this chapter. This chapter is looking at the iconography of the variant Issei stories illustrated, or it's looking at um, another text, right? Uh-huh. So the iconography of this variant Issei Scroll, Issei Stories Illustrated Scrolls from Chapter 6 yeah. is appropriated in right. the early 17th century um, by Tawaya, uh, Tawaraya Sotatsu That's right. right, and his atelier. And they're using the imagery from that text that we talked about in Chapter 6 and um, as a kind of visual secret transmission, yeah. Um, and you're you're sort of arguing here that they are creating an iconography based on rare editions of scrolls owned by high status individuals, which is actually creating a kind of niche market in the face of the sort of commodification that's coming out of the explosion of the print culture that we just talked about in the previous chapter.
0: Precisely. Well, I can't tell you how encouraged I am that you got it's that. It's
1: totally clear. It's <laughs> okay, totally clear. Okay. Good. Good. Excellent. So, what? Um, just to kind of give us a little taste of what's happening here, because I can't see a reference to secret transmission and not ask about it. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Secret well, transmission.
0: Well, um, yeah, he did. Um, so, um, the people who created the Saga edition, um, as I said, they were a, a group. Uh, they were. Uh, financed by someone named Sumi no Kura Soan. Uh, Their calligraphic style was based on that of Koetsu, who was Soan's calligraphy teacher. Um, And Sotatsu uh, was involved in a lot of Sagabon editions, especially uh, of no plays. And yet, it's clear that the Saga edition illustrations are not by him. Why not? And then it turns out that he's creating this completely different iconography uh, about oh maybe a decade after the Sagabon. Why is he doing that? Um, so Tatsu is kind of a mystery artist. Uh, not a lot is known about him. Um, and when um, research got really serious into him after the war, Professor Yamane, um, people started discovering that he's kind of a pastiche artist that especially for figural stuff, uh, he, he does. The main work I talk about is what's called their album leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also discuss his large screen paintings. He also did scrolls. And as I said, he did stuff for printed works. Um, in any event, in almost every case, if you have a figure in one of his Paintings, it has been lifted from some earlier illustrated scroll. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is particularly true with the Issei. Um, the, his appropriation of imagery for the Ise seems to go in, and I'm using he just as a place marker, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's kind of three stages. So the earliest when he's doing fans and the Tawaraya was actually a fan shop. That was their main business. Mm-hmm. Those are coming directly out of the variant illustrated scroll that we discussed earlier. And to be honest with you, if he hadn't appropriated that stuff, probably no one would pay attention to the e version because it exists only in a 19th century copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would have said, well, this is just clearly of no historical or artistic value at all. But of course, he was, he was given access to that scroll. That is the scroll we now have just a copy of by an aristocrat. Right, um, and all the scrolls that he accessed were owned by people like Retired Emperor Gomizuno and stuff like that. And it is such a small group of people. They are so related through marriage and also through poetic practice. They're all Ringo poets. Um, that his audience would have recognized it. Was that, oh yeah, I know where you got that one from. Oh, look, there's an allusion to such and such. Um, so... In that sense it's it's kind of like a secret transmission. you don't have to say anything but everyone recognizes it <laughs> and this is in contradistinction to obviously you know I don't know what their attitudes about it were they, you know that's not the kind of work I do but right. was so on horrified I mean what happens very early by about the 1620s, 20s, maybe even 30s is that um, those, Printings of the saga edition that had been done in movable print are converted to block print. <laughs> it's very easy to do, right? You just get a copy, you take out the page, you paste it onto one block of wood, you re-carve it, and there you go. So that's what led to the prolifer- proliferation of that text was that it was being printed in a much cheaper way Medium, um, and you know, was was so on horrified that you know it was going to the hoi polloi. I have no idea, but um, the the sotatsu imagery is clearly distinct from it. Now there again, it's an atelier. Um, the I'm following uh, some recent arguments that suggest that the the 36 album leaves that I'm looking at in fact form a set. There are others. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are album sleeves that are of the same scene so obviously they couldn't have been for the same project Mm -hmm. Um, but that was done uh, for a specific clientele on a specific occasion actually the death of so on Um, but you know, uh, Sotatsu had an atelier. It was a commercial place, and eventually, this icon—this distinctive iconography—simply becomes another commodity, right? It's—it's right. it's not. People don't know what rare the stuff is from. They just know that it's that style, and that's the style that, in the modern period, we call rimpa. Okay,
1: great. So um, we are almost at the end of our time, and I don't want to keep you for another half hour, which we could easily do in talking about the epilogue. So I'll just mark for listeners. Um, There is an epilogue um, that's full of, among other things, some amazingly beautiful images, some really, really arresting images. This epilogue looks at the fate of the Issei and its iconographies from the Edo through the modern era. So it takes us um, fairly late. So, it looks at, among other things, the position of the isei in the construction of a modern canon of national Japanese literature, Japanese national literature. It looks at the reclamation of the isei as a feminine text. I'm using air quotes here. You can't hear me, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes by women of the Taisho period in the 20th century. And it also looks at the role of the isei in reformulating Japanese culture after the defeat in the Asia Pacific War and in the context of post war booms, both economic and educational. Um, And again, some of the images here are really, really striking, and I just want to direct listeners particularly, um, I keep opening my copy of the book to that chapter and looking at the last two images, and it's just uh, really amazing stuff. So, Joshua, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a really rich text, and there's Amazing, as I hopefully have already made clear, amazing, amazing images as well. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: No, actually, not. I think um, you know. I, I, I think of the epilogue as a bonus track, you know, and and it's not done with the kind of same scholarly rigor, perhaps, as as the other ones. But I wanted to. I want. People, I, you know, anonymous readers for the press said, you know, you're not going to leave us there, are you? You know, come on, can't you tell us a little bit about uh, what happened? What happened then? And so, you know, it, it's uh, just an opportunity to kind of uh, trace that in rather broad outlines. But as you say, with with really some some marvelous images that I try to do some justice in analyzing.
1: Yeah. So now that the book is out, and congratulations Thank on um, very much a beautiful text in many respects. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you?
0: Uh, well, I'm, I'm continuing with this idea that I'm now calling uh, popular literary literacy. Okay, so there's been a fair amount of work uh, over the last few years uh, in Japanese studies about Popular literacy, you know, what, what could peasants read and what couldn't they, what could shop girls read? This is, you know, especially in, in the early modern period. Um, and you know, that's fine. I mean, there's been a fascination with Japanese literacy rates since I think the first European landed on Japan's shores. It's always seemed to have been a very high rate. Uh, and, you know, by the 19th century, even before the the Meiji Restoration, you have genre of popular literature designed specifically for female readers. So um, clearly, uh, you know, there was a high degree of, of literacy. But I'm interested specifically on, on popular. So um, rather than, which I, some of my earlier work has done, looking at, You know, early modern. What early modern scholars say about, and I'm going back to the 100 Poets anthology. (laughs) There are popular editions with little interpretations and again illustrations of the meaning of of the poem. Uh, And so I'm going back to that, back to the 100 Poets, and uh, now looking at um, in a variety of genre um, popular retellings and humorous parodies and stuff like that how well um these poems were known and how they were known um and that's actually involved with a, a digitization project we're doing here at the library of a collection of these these books uh said that um from the uh wonderful sponsorship of the toshiba foundation which will be eventually online digitized and online like uh the Tokugawa map collection is
1: awesome Well, best of luck with that project, and thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: You have been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.